Shabbat Shalom, everyone. As most of you know, we've been doing a lot of upgrades and apps and websites and all kinds of things. And between all that, somehow I managed to throw together a message, too. So um, I wanted to talk about the menorah today. But before I do that, I wanted to encourage everybody, if they haven't already, to uh, check out the new app that YRM has uh, produced that we put out there. It is now live on Android and iPhone, and it will allow people to uh, stay connected to the ministry in a way not really possible before, and it would also allow you to join in the live stream straight from the app and things like that, too. But what I want to speak on today, now that my plug's out of the way, I uh, wanted to speak on the menorah today. I find this topic very interesting, and one of the reasons I chose it was because a lot of the research was already done for me. So, <laughs> so um, the menorah is a, uh, one of the most prominent symbols in history. Nearly everybody, regardless of religion or even those not involved in religion, know what it is. They're familiar with it. Now, granted, most people of modern days are familiar with the nine-branch menorah of the Hanukkah tradition, but... The menorah itself, the seven-branch menorah, is one of the most endearing symbols of our lifetime. And why am I talking about this? What's it for, and why is it important, and what significance does it have for us today? Well, it was more than just a candlestick. There's a lot of allegory, there's a lot of symbolism and things like that with the menorah. And as I studied this, I found it to be fascinating. Um, One of the things that I want to do is go through and read about the first instance of the menorah that we have. And that's found in Exodus 25. Now, I have it up on the screen, but I encourage everybody to follow along with your scriptures. And Exodus 25, verse 31 through 40. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers, shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it. Three branches of the candlesticks out on one side, and the three branches of the candlestick out on the other side. Three bowls made unto it like almonds, with knop and flower on one branch, and three bowls made like almonds on the other branch, with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick, and in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds, with their knops and their flowers. And by the way, a knop is like a bud, by the way. Yeah, it's confusing for me too. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be all be the same, and they shall all be one beaten work of pure gold. And I'm going to get into more how get into more to how impressive this is in just a minute. And they shall make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, and then they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof shall be made of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels. And look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee on the mountain. Now, as I said earlier, over in verse, um, uh, where's it at? It's, they shall be made of one, essentially one chunk of gold this menorah was made out of one solid piece of gold and if you really look it up if you really look into it we see the detail which Yahweh commands Moses to have the menorah made 
One of the main features about this menorah that's so amazing that it's made of beaten work. Now, what is beaten work? The, word, the words hammered or beaten works is Strong's number H4749, and it means beaten out of one piece, upright of one whole piece. This means the original menorah in its honestly gargantuan size compared to the things we have today, little, little replicas, little ideas compared to the menorah. This was a massive piece of work. It was a solid piece of hammered gold. It was not melted down. It was not cast into a mold. It was hammered out from one really big piece of gold. Now, why is that significant? What, what does that mean? Moses could have used the mold. He could have used the cast. But he didn't. He, Yahweh told them to make it out of one piece. And even in the construction of the menorah, in the fact that it's hammered from one piece, there is symbolism in this. I did some research on jewelry. Why is handmade more impressive than cast? Cast is more efficient. It's, more, um, it's cheaper to make. The benefits of handmade, and this is from uh, a handmade, there's a, a couple up in Minnesota has been handmaking jewelry for, in his family for over 100 years. And they had an interview with him, and they asked him the benefits of handmade jewelry, like hammered jewelry that's made from solid pieces of metal, and by hand craftsmanship. Inherently, the jewelry is stronger. Therefore, increased security for your precious stones. It's much tougher than cast pieces. Therefore, it can withstand the strain of day-to-day life. Cast metals are softer and lighter as they have been heated to a liquid state, cooled quickly, and not hammered. There's no chance of porosity. The bubbles in the surface are just under, or crystallization, which are common faults in the casting process. It'll hold the polished finish much better. It doesn't scratch easy, it holds the shape of the design, and cast items do not wear as well as truly handmade pieces. You get a crisper finish, which is lacking in cast items. The cast piece is usually created on the go. Hard-to-reach areas are often left unpolished. I'm sure you've probably seen cheap jewelry where little archways and little details and things like that, inside it's almost like a black. It's like, you can tell, it's cheap. Modifications or alterations during making process are much, much easier. The range and complexity of designs we can offer is infinitely increased. We are able to sit more finely and delicately due to the stronger metals, and we can also offer tension set rings. It can be made more quickly. And now this doesn't just apply to rings. This applies to any piece of jewelry. It can be made more quickly, and the finished piece will be totally unique. Small imperfections and characteristics of change are intrinsic to the process of hand-making a ring. And you can add your own twist to a design. They are not limited by template or software. Now, why is this important? Why is it being, why is having the menorah made of hand-beaten metal important? Well, what I discovered is that there's a lot of similarities between a handcrafted piece of jewelry and us as believers. We we can see a lot of similarities here. A handmade item is always more durable. It's more valuable than one made in cast. Handmade items are unique and can't be replicated. This could be looked on as how an example of how Yahweh wants us to be. He doesn't want mass-produced zombies. I hear that a lot here. Yahweh doesn't want robots. Yahweh wants people that are lovingly crafted. He wants people that are hammered and tried and that truly test their desire to do what is good and righteous in his eyes. That's what he wants. Just like he wanted this out of the menorah. And I'll get back to that too. But this all ties together and it's all very, very interesting. 
So as I said, back to the menorah. This was a mammoth item. This was a huge undertaking by Moses. And the people involved, obviously. Moses didn't, wasn't the only one that dealt with this. Now, a lot of the research that you do on the menorah, there's a little bit here, as I read in Exodus. But if you really get into it, Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of information on the menorah. It tells you how it was, you know, the general idea of how it was made, but not really anything else. We have a general idea. But if you go into some um, Jewish history in the Midrash and the Talmud and things like that, you can find some very interesting things. And a lot of things I found have been studied and reviewed and are generally accepted as truth. Now, granted, when you're dealing with the Midrash or you're dealing with the Talmud or you're dealing with any sort of traditional literature, you're going to get some tradition in there. So take all of that into consideration. The Midrash gives a different look into how the menorah came about. It states the method for constructing the menorah was too difficult for Moses to understand. So Yahweh showed him one in the fire and told him, this is how you will make it. But Moses was unable to do so, so Yahweh told him to take a block of gold and have Bet-Zael, a carpenter from Judah, toss it into the fire. And after a dazzling flash of light, the glorious menorah came out of the fire formed by Yahweh himself. This is the type of tradition I'm talking about. There's obviously no biblical support for this story. I just thought it was interesting that Moses could handle having this rebellious, whiny group of people follow him around for 40 years. He could construct the tabernacle, the ark, the mercy seat, no problem. But the menorah, too hard. Come on. <laughs> Come on. But that's tradition for you. Most of the time, it doesn't add up with history or fact. Oftentimes, it's embellished. Oftentimes, it's honestly false. Anyway, the details have been discussed and endlessly debated uh, in the Talmud and related Jewish literature. The following are considered to be reliable and agreed upon details regarding the construction and function of the menorah, even though there is some obvious tradition thrown in, as I stated. Several of the details found here are not found in Scripture. However, if we want to, uh, we are to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. And I think that concerns history as well. And so... I'm going to start here with the seven lamps. Now, the menorah had seven lamps, one on the top, one in the middle stem, and one on top of each of the six branches. Each lamp was made of the same gold used to form the menorah. The lamps were boat-shaped. This, you'd be amazed how hard it is to find any sort of imagery relating to a seven-branch menorah. That is, it's all Hanukkah. It's all Hanukkah. And so I kind of had to improvise here. But they were boat-shaped lamps, so I went with it. Now, it says that they were boat-shaped with pointed ends, and they faced the center lamp. The center lamp, however, resembled a basin. Each lamp had a cover on it with a hole in the middle for the oil. The wicks were positioned by either bending them forward towards the center or by clamping them down between the bowl of the cover. The lamps themselves were lit daily, from evening until morning, from right to left. And that's Exodus 27:21. According to the Talmud, Shabbat 22b, each lamp held about nine ounces of the purest oil, enough to burn throughout the night. And the wicks, as we know, were made of the worn-out garments of the priest. Next were the seven branches. There it is. The middle branch, or the stem, ascended straight up from the center of the base. The six branches emerged from the three apples, or fruit, proportionally located on the stem. Tradition says that they were apples. There's going to be a lot of that apples or fruit of some kind. 
They were placed proportionally located on the stem. Two branches extended diagonally from each side of the apple until they reached the height of the middle stem. Unlike modern depictions of the menorah, it is thought that the branches were straight, not curved. In a sense, the menorah itself resembled a tree, just as the menorah is referred to as the tree of life. According to the Talmud, the height of the menorah from the base to the end of the branches was 18 handbreadths, roughly 63 inches. That's, that, I'm 62 inches tall. That's a big lamp. That's a big lamp. That's a big lamp and a solid piece of gold. It's an impressive piece of work. The first three tefahim were the base itself. The other elements, cups, buds, and flowers, were then placed upon the tree. So you can already kind of see the varying, how things change throughout history. I mean, now we have a nine-branch menorah, which has, you know, it's to do with Hanukkah. We have the seven-branch menorah, which we typically look at as, you know, generally as closer to the truth. But if you go even farther back, it states that it could have, they might have even been straight, which, I mean, so who really knows how they were really designed back then? Next, we have the flowers. Now, I got a rose up here because, again, they state in the, um, in the Talmud and other Jewish sources that the flowers mentioned, the buds and flowers, were like roses. These were the ornamental parts that intended to beautify the menorah. According to Targum Yohanatan, the official Eastern Babylonian Targum to the Nevi'im, its early origins, however, are Western, from the land of Israel. And the Talmudic tradition, keyword, attributes this authorship to Jonathan ben Uziel, a pupil of Hillel. We're familiar with him. A doctor of law at Jerusalem at the time of King Herod. The flowers were similar to roses. The flowers appeared at the top of each branch just before the lamps, and the other two occurred on the main stem, including one at the base of the menorah. According to the Tosafot, they are medieval commentaries on the Talmud, all the ornaments of the menorah measured one tefah in height, about three and a half inches, or the width of a handbreadth, except for the combined flower cup apple that appeared at the stem at the number, the sixth one down. This is an ancient unit of measurement that's around 4.2 inches, roughly, the uh, tefah six. Again, a lot of Jewish stuff that I'm not super familiar with, but it's what they were saying. Next, we have the 11, not that, the 11 fruits or buds. These were the apples or similar fruits that were functional ornamentations that protruded on the stem and formed the start of the pairs of branches for the menorah. The branches would extend outward from the top and the three fruits in the main stem. It also appeared at the top of each branch as well. The Talmud in Menachat 28b states that they were shaped like apples. They are sometimes likened to the buds that develop into fruit. All the apples had almond decorations engraved on them. So, again, you're kind of getting this idea that it was extremely intricate, far more intricate than what we have today, for sure. And then from here, we had the seven branches, the nine flowers, the 11 fruits or buds, and then we move on to the 22 cups. Now, the 22 cups, these were like little tiny baubles almost on the way down the menorah that held extra oil. The goblets or flower cups were really chalice-like containers used to hold larger, larger quantities of liquid that resembled almond buds. So I couldn't find, you can kind of see here the kind of uh, 
little buds. That's an almond tree in Jerusalem. And so those are the buds. It was similar looking to that. It's as close as I could find anyway. They are likened unto stems that supply the liquid for the blossoms and the fruit. According to Rashi, which is another Jewish source, the cups resembled long, narrow tubes rather than flower cups. These three cups were located at the top of each branch and an extra cup located on the lower main stem. So you have to think, not only was this a hammered piece of solid gold, but all these narrow channels and stuff were worked into this to hold the oil from the main, from the main trunk, or stem, if you will, and all of this oil would, was held in the top and in the stem and in the branches. I mean, this is a phenomenal piece of, of construction, if you will. Now, here's another one for you. Rabbi, I'm going to butcher this one, Solomon ben Isaac, or Shlomo Yitzaki, known as Rashi, again, based on an acronym of the Hebrew initials, is one of the most influential Jewish commentators in history. He was born in Troyes, in Champagne, in northern France in 1040. He's the most widely read Jewish Bible commentator. He also wrote a running commentary on the Babylonian Talmud. So if you've ever peeked into the Talmud or read anything about it, you've read some of his commentary. He's deeply involved in that. Now, he was the one that's kind of introducing all this stuff, all this information. Lastly, well, not lastly, I take that back. Second to lastly, we have one base, which is the, uh, the, there it is. The base of the menorah, typically, it's agreed, had three feet instead of a rounded base. And why this was important, I'm not sure, but if you find ancient depictions of menorahs on um, engraved into stone and things like that, almost always it has three little feet at the bottom, like a tripod of some kind. Now, the base was either square or rectangle-shaped and made of pure hammered gold with three legs. The flower that adorned its top, again in Exodus 25:31 and Numbers 8:4, the exact dimensions of the base are not stated. The Talmud says that the base had three legs that rose three tefachim high, i.e. approximately ten and a half inches high off the ground. So you can kind of get a, a good idea for the size of this thing. And lastly is the various utensils, the snuff dishes, the tongs and things like that. Believe it or not, it's hard to find golden snuff dishes and tongs online, so I just went with a gold background. In addition to the menorah itself, the utensils for the oil were created, and again in Numbers 4.9 it mentions this, these included tongs to place and remove the wicks, trays and spoons to remove the ashes from the wicks. In addition, three-step platform was placed in front of the menorah for kindling the wicks and cleaning the lamps. Like all other utensils of the menorah, these items were made of pure gold. So as mentioned before, these lamps were lit daily, from evening until morning, from the starting of the central lamp, moving right to left. According to the Talmud in Shabbat 22b, all the lamps received the same amount of olive oil. The westernmost lamp, according to Rashi, according to the, the tradition, this, according to tradition, the center lamp, due to its orientation, miraculously never ran out of oil, even though it was kindled first in the sequence. This tradition, again, carries on a little to the Hanukkah menorah as well. This isn't exclusive. In other words, when Aaron would rekindle the lamp every morning, he found the lamp still burning. So he simply refilled it. Now, this is part of the commandment. It was never to go out. It was never to go out. Yahweh commanded the people to never let the menorah 
light stopped shining. So he simply refilled it with oil, trimmed the wick. And this miracle is also said to have occurred during the temple period, as we know with, with Hanukkah. Though it abruptly, abruptly ended about 40 years before the destruction of the second temple, after the death of Yahshua the Messiah, the true servant and branch of Yahweh. Again, another tie to the menorah there with what he's called in scripture. As it is attested in the Talmud, our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for Yahweh did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson colored strap become white, nor did the westernmost light shine. And that's from Yoma 39a. The westernmost light is talking about the menorah. After the death and resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah, the veil of the temple was rent asunder, and the miraculous light of the menorah began to shine through the whole world. Obviously, it's a figure of speech, but that's Yahshua is the way and the light, right? And so the once hidden light of the world has now begun to shine throughout the whole world. In his light do we see light, and that's from Psalm 36, 9. For Elohim, for Elohim who said, let, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge to the glory of Yahweh in the face of Yahshua Messiah, and that's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The light from the menorah is a physical light that represents a spiritual one. It was not seen from the outside of the tabernacle, but only while inside the holy chamber. Before the holy place and the sacrificial atonement, it enabled service to Yahweh to be performed, though it was not a light to be used for profane purposes. It isn't much of a stretch to see the Messiah in these types and shadows, Hebrew 8.5. He is the suffering servant who lightens everyone in the world. He is the center, the supporting trunk for the other branches. The light itself came from burning the pure olive oil, the symbol of anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was kindled by the hand of a man of peace and humility. Likewise, we are given light to behold the sacrifice of Yahshua for our atonement. We are filled with that light, as stated in John 8, 12, 1 John 1, 7, and Ephesians 5, 8. But when we come to Messiah, we can behold the truth of Yahweh's unfailing love that draws us to be united with him. By studying the tabernacle and its details, we can learn about heavenly things. After all, everything in the tabernacle was a pattern of heavenly things. It was a mirrored image of things that are in heaven. And they are a shadow of the pattern of what is to come in Messiah. And I hope that in this short message, I'm trying to save some extra time for old Seamus back there. He's got a, he's got a treat for you guys. And I hope in this quick message, you learn something you didn't know. And you have a new appreciation for the menorah, as I do. It is a often over overused but under, under, misunderstood piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle and it played a pivotal role in the worship of Yahweh and Yahshua is that light for us today and I pray that this has been a blessing to you and that you learned something you didn't know so Yahweh bless you